Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this latest episode of the First Word Podcast. My name is Alex, and I'm here with my co-host, Mike. And today we have a special guest joining us from, I believe he's in Italy now, uh, John Bleasdale, who we've had on the show before. He's a writer for Cineview, and uh, most importantly, and I want to talk to you about this, John, um, but uh, a teaching film in Italy. Um, So thank you for joining us today. Oh, it's good to be here. Um, and I want to say, before we start, I've been following a lot of your uh, updates online um, in Italy. Where, where are you exactly in Italy? So I'm in the northeast of Italy, which is um, an area close to, um, where would I be? I'm about an hour from Venice, um, an hour from Padua. I'm, I'm actually in a very small village in the mountains, so it's it's mm. not a place that anybody would really know outside of the region. Uh, but it's very beautiful, a little bit isolated. Um but yeah, within an hour, you can get to some really beautiful places. Yeah, I see you going to Venice a lot. And I always wonder if it's just that easy, like, oh, I'll hop on the train and I'm there. Yeah, um, that's my that's my commute, essentially. I, I go to Venice uh, three or four times a week. Oh, I, I used to. I haven't been for a long time now because of the uh, because of the coronavirus. Yeah, and you, you a lot of your updates are really just tough because um, it's hard to hear directly from someone in Italy experiencing it and, and sort of updating it as it's happening inside the country rather than you know, just reading news reports from abroad. Um, But one of the things I just really want to compliment you on and just say I I really admire it and I think it's awesome is this uh, online film class you're doing with your film students, um, which is not only just, from my perspective, it's not only just fun and exciting way to keep them focused on film, but you're bringing in some major guests and you're actually having uh, what seems to be really fascinating commentary and discussion about great films. and I think that's one of the things that's keeping a lot of film geeks like all of us together and going right now is the fact that we can still focus on film and keep the excitement for cinema going despite being not only locked down and quarantined in our own houses, but also just uh, dealing with the weight and the and the the pressure of this pandemic that's all over the world and, and affecting every single person right now. Yeah, I'm a very um, I'm a very silver lining kind of person, and um, when it became very clear very early on um, in February, in fact, that we we stopped going to university, we stopped going to school. And I actually, the, the people I'm teaching are actually usually, most of the time, they're just language students. So I do do a, a, um, a few classes for a film MA, but uh, most of it is just straightforward English language teaching. Um, so when we started to do online courses, I, I decided, let's do a film club. Let's Let's try to turn this into something positive, something we wouldn't normally have time to do. You've yeah. got all the time in the world at home, so let's watch a movie a week and talk about it. And we started with, and I started to ask them, what have they not seen mm. that they have always wanted to see or or think they ought to have seen? So they started with The Godfather, surprisingly. I, I thought everybody <laughs> would have seen that, but apparently not. And these are, you know, a lot of them are mature students. A lot of them are, um, are in their 20s or postgraduates. So... Um, so we started with the Godfather. We watched Don't Look Now again. Nobody had seen Don't Look Now, even though it's set in oh, Venice. It's probably yeah. the best film ever filmed in Venice. Yeah. Um, and then I realized that maybe they're getting a bit bored of my voice. So I invited Kalim Aftab to to come. He's a friend of mine from from way back from the from the festivals, and he's written a biography of Spike Lee. He actually co-wrote. Spike Lee's autobiography, as told to Kaleem Maftab, sort of thing. And he came in and we did She's Gotta Have It. And um, then Asif Kapadia came in uh, this week. 
and talked about um, uh, Amy. And he actually, because we're keeping up the idea of, you know, proposing films for them, um, he actually talked a lot about Italian American by Martin Scorsese, which um, mm. during the conversation, he kind of realized how influential it was on him as well. He sort of started having memories of things that had influenced him. So that was really interesting from that point of view. And you're right, this is so generous of people to come in and, and do this for us. And especially because, it, it, as, as I say, they're not really film students. So it's not like I'm asking people to come in and, and do something that is affiliated to some sort of film school. This is just people who I know coming in and, and devote and donating their time uh, to to make uh, the, this isolation a little bit less stressful. So it's it's a great. I, I'm yeah, I'm really happy about it. And I've got a, I'm hopefully hopefully I've got a couple of people lined up who might be um, who might be might be really good fun uh, later on this month. Good. The only thing I've wondered is like, can I just join as a random nobody and participate? Is that allowed? <laughs> uh, you could join and listen in, but you can't participate. Um, ah, okay, okay. Yeah, I, I've got a lot of friends who who quite uh, would like to do that, but I think this is very important that it remains a space for the students to to express themselves. And yeah. I mean, um, the lessons that I'm doing at the moment that we're continuing to do have become kind of very important psychologically because, you know, people mm. have not, people have not had any social interaction for, for, well, for the whole of March. We're in April now. It was, it was the end of February when this started for us. Yeah. So it's really important that they have that time, you know, so I've, um, I'm, I'm quite happy for people to listen in. There's nothing wrong with that, but, um, I do want it to, to remain, I, I mean, I'm the first person who, sh who shuts up. I, I want them to go and talk and they want, they ask the questions and they, they run it basically. So it's, <laughs> uh, it's great. The only problem is, uh, um, yesterday, uh, I put a post on Facebook for them, um, that, um, I'd managed to get Quentin Tarantino to come in, uh, oh, to, wow. dis to discuss little women. And of course, some of them then glanced at the calendar and realized, uh, with a little bit of delay that it might not be totally serious what I had suggested and um, <laughs> of course and I, I think all my all my brownie points went out the window at that point I was uh, I was about to say Tarantino talking about little women seems like an odd choice but hey if you <laughs> yeah it was either little women or Mamma Mia too I couldn't it was, <laughs> it was, but they didn't particularly like that April Fool <laughs> is that is it a thing in Italy? I didn't even. I mean, I guess it's worldwide now to do April Fools. But... Yeah, I think that's the problem. It's it's a really big thing in England. It's not. Um, it's not particular. I mean, they have this thing called Pesce de Aprile, which is um, fishes of April fishes, I guess, and it just <laughs> involves very much very basic stuff like leaving a paper fish in your hood hood of your your hoodie or mm. uh, sticking it on your back or something. Uh, and it's really, really that's 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 kids stuff compared to what we used to get up to in England. Yeah. So <laughs> exactly, I've got an unfair advantage, I'm afraid. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, thanks for the introduction, and I want to jump right into. So our discussion this week um, is actually about two films that uh, are small scale, minimal sci-fi features. Um, and I want to talk about these because I've been wanting to talk about them for a long time. They both premiered at festivals last year, and um, they're both similar, which is why I want to talk about both in one episode. But also just because, uh, as for listeners know that Mike and I are huge Black Mirror fans, both of them have that kind of um, Black Mirror-y sci-fi element to them of 
of not only not answering every question, but the the mysteriousness of a sci-fi world that is uh, contained within some limited parameter of, of either where it's happening or an understanding of what we're seeing and why. Um, so the two films are The Platform, uh, which is a, a Spanish feature, also known as El Hoyo, um, originally premiered at the Toronto Film Festival last year, I think, in Midnight Madness, and it won the Audience Award there, and then it picked up a bunch of other awards at the Sitges Film Festival. Um, and the other film is Vivarium, which is made by an Irish filmmaker. Uh, and this one premiered at the Cannes Film Festival last year in Critics Week, which is where I originally saw it. Um, and I don't think it has won many awards, but it's been um, picking up steam just because it's kind of a cool little sci-fi that is an original idea, as far as I know, and kind of uh, came out of nowhere in a way. Um, and uh, so of these two, um, I guess the one I want to talk about first is Vivarium, um, and then we can get into the platform. Uh, and so with Vivarium, um, for those who don't know, the concept is, and I don't want to say too much because it's a good one to experience when you haven't seen it. And if you haven't seen it, maybe you shouldn't be listening to this episode. But for everyone else uh, who has seen it and wants to hear about the discussion, obviously the, the concept is there's this couple played by Imogen Poots and Jesse Eisenberg. And we're introduced very quickly to them. They kind of, within a few minutes, get in a car uh, and drive off with this realist, this creepy real estate agent and go to this um, idyllic neighborhood where they're looking at a home a starter home as he says uh but it's actually not it's a forever home and then next thing you know they're kind of trapped in this little idyllic neighborhood that is um the first few shots you see of it it feels very fake which uh mike and i were watching it last night and i and i was trying to tell him like that's kind of the point um and so that's the introduction from there and i i'm i really want to get into both of these because I, I actually really love both of these films in terms of sci-fi features that have achieved a lot on a smaller scale um so to start uh john what did you think of avarium are you a big fan yeah i liked it a lot i liked it um i really it really surprised me i was really not expecting to like it um i'd seen a film by Locke and finnegan before the director uh, which was much smaller scale, and which now I'm I'm struggling to remember the title of, but it was a, uh, it was kind of rural Irish horror with a guy going into the woods to to do some sort of surveying, and it was very much an atmospheric film, but it it was it felt like a film that had a lot of atmosphere, uh, but didn't have um, a story as such, or didn't have a, a strong enough story to to carry the film. Mm. Um, I've got a feeling it was called Without Name. Yeah, I'm checking his IMDb. That, that's, that's yes, without name. <laughs> yeah. Um, whereas this film really felt like it really had, had a story. It had something very interesting. It felt like it could have, it could have included a bit more of that. But I was, um, I was constantly surprised by it. And I understand what you mean by wanting people to see this before listening to our conversation. Because I felt those surprises... Uh, were pretty much sustained all the way through. I mean, it, yeah. the, the danger with this kind of film is that the premise is really interesting, and then, you know, where you take that premise, where you move it, um, can sometimes be disappointing, or it can, it, can, it can wear out its welcome long before you finish the movie. Uh, but here I, I, I felt with a combination of the way it looked and the way it felt and the performances... It actually, I, it held me to the end, and I was, um, yeah, I was, I was, I was a big fan of this. 
Yeah, I think uh, you, you touched upon it, but one of the most uh, challenging things about making a film like this is the idea that you have two people. And that's what, before I went to see it, that's what I heard. It was like, oh, two people stuck in a home. And that's all I knew about it. And it's like, how do you make that interesting for 90 minutes? And how do you progress the plot in a way that isn't, okay, they've got there and they've tried to get out and they've tried all the methods. And what I like about Vivarium's progression in that plot setup is the way, like, within 30 minutes, I think, or even 40 minutes, they go through all those links. Like, Eisenberg literally tries down to burn down, burn down the house as a desperate measure of getting out. And I'm like, I always love when that happens, when the, when the, when the screenwriters are like, okay, we're going to actually have these people try everything. We're going to have them freak out completely and actually go through all the links that you're like, oh, no, they would never try that. Why not? Because kind of like the Groundhog's Day setup, you, you have to try that. You have to try every possible um, version of what they could do because otherwise you're 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 stretching a, a plot too thin. If it was just if it was him in the last you know ten minutes trying to burn down the home, that would be too boring to me. And I think that's what Vivarium keeps doing so well. Like you said, this these surprises, these moments of like, wait, what? <laughs> and watching it with Mike last night, and Mike, I want to hear your comments on this. The whole time we were like, what the fuck? Like the whole time it's just, oh my god, I can't believe there's this moment of of. Uh, I think we just I described it in a text to Mike as like uncomfortableness with this weirdness of what's happening because throughout the whole film we have no idea what's happening. That's the other interesting thing is there are no questions answered. Everything is the suspicions and the hints given, but there's no moment where they're like, oh, okay, this is where you are and this is what's going on. Um, and I really like that about it. Mike, yeah, I definitely agree with the, <laughs> oh, yeah. the thing about no explanations. Um, explanations can really kill a film like this where you sort of go, oh, okay, that's, that's why that happened. All right. Fair enough. But uh, yeah, no, I like that too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going back and rereading our text thread, basically only looking at the things I said and <laughs> yeah, it's been, it's, it's, ha, row, row. Nice. <laughs> yeah. None of this makes any sense out of context. Uh, well, it's just, but it sort of like escalates and says, uh, you know, WTF, this is the most uncomfortable movie of my life. Uh, they should kill themselves. <laughs> oh my God. Uh, fucking no. God damn it. Close up eating. Who made this movie? Well, actually, wait, before you go on, Mike, that was actually one of the points that they don't explore is the kill themselves angle. I mean, there's a hint at it. And there's, I actually thought to myself, well, they could play, the, they could almost play it like a video game. Like he tries to kill himself and then he just wakes up the next morning and he's still alive. Um, but clearly by the end with Jesse Eisenberg specifically, he does die in a way where like, okay, um, even though we don't really know where he goes, which is actually my thought too. I was like, are, are the people running this using it as like fuel, almost like the Matrix where the humans do something and then when they're done, they just get like recycled back into the food system of whatever these aliens or creatures or whatever they are are that are running it i don't know i don't know my only like uh criticism for the movie really is that they oftentimes they'll show something like a super close-up um of you know something that they feel is is supposed to be important but then it never gets brought up again like for example the once he starts digging and they show a super close up of the little yellow clayish stuff inside the soil, uh, almost to imply like, hey, you know, this is a thing and you'll know what it means later. And they never brought it up. 
And, you know, I there is there are a lot of seeds planted in this movie that we never get to see grow. And then it was somewhat frustrating for me. I know that not some movies like to be more abstract and like to uh, lay some foundation and allow you to build on it after the film's over. And that's perfectly fair. But I, I do feel like I'm still getting past some of the things in this movie that for me felt like misdirects and they did they didn't fulfill some of the uh they didn't fulfill some of the i don't know what the word would be but some some of the offers they made essentially early on in the film they basically said like there's a lot of mystery here and and you expect it to unfold and of course that's the the, the movie's end game is that it's not going to explain itself for you it's simply going to fuck you up and and make you think about the baseline um point which is uh suburbia and the the sort of cycle that we all that the expectation that you have control over your life but you're really all just um um pieces of a machine you're destined to do the same thing and live in the same place and and you all have your roles to play you, the the wife makes the coffee and the husband digs the front yard we assume <laughs> that all those other people are probably doing some variation of the same thing in their little worlds, which of course we can talk about her journey, uh, her sort of Alice in Wonderland journey uh, later. But obviously that's kind of where I, I, I still am today processing the movie. Yeah. That's a theme similar to the platform as well. And we'll get into that later, but just the idea of like, especially at the start of a volume, but the idea of, Oh, you think you're better than this and you think you're different. And then next thing you know, you're sucked into it doing the same thing as everyone else, too. And you're just like a part of the system. And as much as you try to break out of it, as much as you think that you're not a part of it, you you just can't. You're you're sucked in. Um, and that, I, the feels it moves so quickly at the start of Bavarian where they like they meet this creepy sales dude. And then like in a flash, he's just gone. And that was one of the things I'm like, I want to follow up with this guy, which obviously they do at the end. But I want to follow up with this guy because like what is his goal like what does he get out of getting them into a home like does he get to eat them you know that was actually one of my first thoughts was like is is did he capture his food and now he gets to let them grow and then eat them later or something like that but they never really follow up other than the cyclical nature of what the sales guy is trying to do which is capture a loving couple and throw them into this suburban life of being stuck there yeah i'm i'm i i think there's a an element at the very beginning you have that almost two on the nose metaphor of the birds in the nest and uh, one of them sort of knocking them out of the nest. So it's the idea of dislocation, the idea of an imposter, um, you know, um, coming invading and sort of replacing uh, the, the original sort of children in in that case. Um, I think that sort of sets up what Mike is saying, uh, like it almost sets up like a promise but I kind of like that that was now that there were these sort of dotted lines between things rather than straight lines. So, yeah. so at the very beginning, when you see uh, Imogen Poots's character, Gemma is a, a primary school teacher, and she's uh, she's doing an exercise with the children, uh, imagining the wind and the tree and everything, and um, and it's a really naturalistic moment, and it's a really you know, it totally wrong foots you as to what kind of film this is going to be. Yeah. Uh, and I think that their performances really sell it. I think then the naturalism of their performances, um, Jesse Eisenberg, I, I haven't seen, 
be as good as this uh, for years, frankly. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, going back to maybe the ice, well, not the ice storm, the uh, the squid and the whale. With, oh, well, that's, yeah, that's a long time ago, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, he's not, maybe I'm not a, the biggest fan of, or maybe he was good in night moves as well, but it was, um, he, he seemed really natural. And he, he, he put a lot of his sort of um, little tricks away, little sort of quirky things that he usually does. And I thought that, and and anyway, the the wind thing, you sort of think, okay, well, why was what what was all that about? And then, in the later on when they're in suburbia and they say, you know, I really miss the wind, yeah. and you get a feeling for how airless this place is. I think what it I think what it doesn't work as, or or I, I'm not. I I think again, it's a little bit of a misdirection. Is I don't actually think it's got much to say from a satirical point of view or for, as some sort of you know, ah, this is what society's like because it's yeah, yeah. so obviously um, a version of suburbia which is based on a sort of 1940s New Yorker cartoon. Yeah. It's not. It's not recognized. It's like um, what was the George Clooney film that um, Suburbiton or something it was called the uh, uh, Suburbicon, I think. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was kind of like this. Oh God. This yeah, well, that, a much worse <laughs> movie, but it had a similar sort of. The setup was was similar in that you're sort of looking at a critique of a society that doesn't kind of doesn't really exist anymore anyway. Right. So, th in this case, I found you know, housing estates are not that uniform anymore. That sort of you know, it looked like something out of a, a total different era. It looked like the aliens had basically been listening to watching TV from thirty, forty, fifty years ago, and have had reproduced the imitation on that version. So how how much it had in terms of satirical sort of impact you know uh, don't we all live in this kind of prison sort of way well I, no i didn't feel that at all <laughs> yeah. i didn't think we i don't think we do but I, I i don't see that as a failing of the movie i just don't think that's what the movie was was even trying to do yeah and especially compared to again jumping ahead but especially compared to the platform which i think is a much more successful social commentary film than vivarium in that I still like Vivarium, and like you said, it's not a failing. It's just I like Vivarium more as like a fun sci-fi piece more than a, something that I say, oh, this is commenting on the way things work, especially in the sense that it's so obvious in the uh, – or obvio in the, in the steps they take um, for Vivarium in terms of like, oh, they have a kid. And they have the quintessential house. Like you said, that not everyone has this, especially Europeans don't ever live in houses like this. And also just this idea of um, raising a kid is not particularly profoundly deep in its commentary. Um, but I think kind of like Black Mirror, there's a lot of Black Mirror episodes where the, the concept of it kind of washes over me, but I love the way it's brought to life and I love the way it's sort of shown. Like the the the... the like drab visuals of a of the world of a variant where they're stuck there where it's just like the same clouds over and over and that same like weird green color over and over and over just kind of makes me think more i think to me that's the deepest aspect of what it's commenting on which is like the repetition of the world mm -hmm. and the way that uh, if you look at it from the lens of the theory that Vivarium is like an alien planet that somehow they suck people to and they raise humans on, that kind of like the Matrix, this is their horribly rendered version of what a perfect uh, human life would be. And that this is what you get to see out of it. And that to me, that's the most interesting commentary. It's like, oh, well, if an alien came down to the planet and tried to observe humanity and recreate that in their own way, is this what they would come up with? And thus, is that is that what we 
distill human life down to is the the repetition of get a house, have a kid, raise a kid, and you'll be free. And and it's not that deep, but it is still there. And and I don't know. That's the only little part of it I found in terms of that commentary. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah, it's it's definitely. Um... The commentary is very clear, right? Um, but it's weird how they packaged it in such a confusing and mysterious way where it's like, you know, the why is completely absent from this movie. Why why, um, why it looks the way it does. And I, I think that it's very clear that there's like... Um, there, there's an alien element, as you mentioned, and obviously, you know, the tell me what you, who you talk to, and what they sounded like, or whatever the line was, and then he basically becomes an alien, and and it, it has that whole undertone of aliens trying to mimic human activity, and the base of what they understand humans are about is the checkpoints of get married, get a house have a kid, uh, raise your kid, send your kid off to the world, and then basically you die. As a, you know, And of course, for many people, they die physically 30, 40 years later, but they die inside as soon as they let their kid go. They basically like release their uh, existence onto this new being. But if that's the point, or at least that's a, a message that I'm extrapolating from this movie they do a very weird thing which is to make the guy the son um quote unquote into this <laughs> sort of like mindless robot drone of his own who's going to live his existence of singular purpose of recruiting the next couple and then disappearing and, and recruiting other couples until he dies and is replaced by mm-hmm. the next mindless drone um, so there's definitely like a sub commentary in there also about corporate America or corporate earth where you are at your desk, you do the same shit over and over again, um, dooming people to their own idiosyncrasies and then you die and are replaced by just a pretty much the same thing, just in different flesh. And I like those commentaries. I mean, I like being able to talk about this and having this conversation. But the reality is that the movie says very little in terms of, uh, you know, of commenting further on this. And I don't know that I like that. Like, I feel like this isn't the movie isn't a discussion Uh, uh, movies can spawn discussion. And I think that's very great and healthy, and it's a sign of a very well thought out movie. But if we're just hypothesizing on our own things about what it means to be a human and what it means to be a suburbanite and things like that, and we're not really talking about the film, the film's specific message of what it means to be caught up in those uh, preordained destinies, then what's the filmmaker's point? What's he trying to say other than making an observation that humanity is this way? That's to me, what I'm still struggling with on this movie is like, you know, why, why, why show this obvious truth and put it in front of us? Uh, 
without having any characters, whether it's the main ones or or, or a different one, providing a sort of a, a sense of awareness or a sense of of purpose to sending these characters through it. Because the characters never have a single moment of realization. They don't, right? Like, well, do they? Well, I was only going to say Gemma has, like, she has the moment where she actually turns into the mother. Like, she's rejecting it consistently, and then she's the only one who kind of just, like, out of nowhere, even though she hates the child, starts treating it as her own, or, like, in a motherly way. Oh, oh, okay. Which is the only major development I saw with her. Well, she she objects to the child being murdered. It's not, it's not, right. um, I mean, it's not exactly, you know, it's not quite that binary. I think there are a couple of, um, I think there are a couple of degrees between motherhood and not wanting to murder children, which uh, are intermediary places that you can be. Um, I, I, I think what Mike's saying is, is really true. And I think the, um, and I, I, I guess it's what, what are you going, what are you going for? Um, I don't think this is dealing with anything as straightforward as a message. And I've, in fact, I, I think that the you made me like the ending a little bit more than I, I actually did because I, I felt the ending was the weakest part because it felt like, oh, we've we've come all this way. This is all so you can do it again. It, it felt very, I mean, I, I think it was self-consciously a sort of let down, but it almost felt like you just didn't have another set so you decided that was going to be the you, you'd, you'd use that one twice um it just didn't seem to make sense to me you have this enormous thing and you see you're doing it they're doing it with other people then shouldn't there be an army of people and you know shouldn't it be a different office that he goes to um and what yeah. happens to the surplus surely there must be loads of children who are being raised you don't they don't need that many offices or you you would populate other offices or you would go back to the school or you would you know get another job you get a job as a handyman at the school so that that sort of didn't satisfy me that idea that you know it's just a uh, repetition the way corporate america is uh, yeah that that's kind of a little that's that giving it more benefit of the doubt i think and and <laughs> it's actually more interesting but I just felt that this film was about the uncanny. It was all about uncanny similarities. And mm -hmm. part of the uncanny is not really necessarily articulating something as clearly defined as a, as a message. You, you just, everything is just off center. Everything is just slightly off kilter. And the other, I mean, the, the thing about the message of like, Oh, okay, we have these lives and we live them and repeat them and all the rest of it. But that whole concept, that whole idea is, is, turned on its head by the fact that the main protagonists are absolutely resisting that they're not you know they're being totally forced to do this by by not having any other options so that's that shows us that life isn't like that life is full of other options and um but and until the, until the turning point though of which they have to accept it which i think is a part of the the writing that there's a moment right. where they kind of like they have to give into it other because they'll die or you know otherwise there's because like you said there's literally nothing else to do yeah and they're offered a way out it's like an escape room and they're offered look okay you get this you get this kid to go right and there were loads of little touches that i thought had sort of satirical intent and and had a you know like i liked the way things were delivered like an amazon uh parcel every day <laughs> and yeah. everything was as neat as a sort of ikea had an ikea feel to it so those things were, were were great, but I just it was almost like something as coherent and uh, an articulate as a as a message, as singular and human as a message, um, would would have disrupted the sort of otherness of 
of what we were looking at. Yeah, I was always hoping that there would have been one scene where in their exploration of the neighborhood, they, they stumble upon like another family, so to say, living the same way. And these people also have given in and are kind of like, holy shit, someone else. And that for whatever reason, they have a five minute conversation where it's like, oh, this is what we think is going on. This is what you, you know, like, this is why we are here. What, you know, what is happening? And then, you know, I'm not writing this, but like, you know, and then the scene somehow con continues with them not being there because obviously the writing of this is meant to be just these two. But I thought, I thought something like, I mean, and I, it goes back to the concept of Black Mirror to me where it's like they, uh, they could go off and explain this and that. They could add more context here. They could have this kind of scene here, but they don't. And they keep it that way because it, the mystery of not knowing any of these answers, I think, heightens what we are watching, at least in, the, in an entertainment kind of way. Like, could, you know, this, this isn't as contained as, say, a cube or a saw or the platform, but it is more... I think, and I the whole the Black Mirror is a discussion for another day, but I think it is influenced by Black Mirror in that sense, where like he he doesn't feel the need to to give you any specific answers or to provide more commentary. It's just pure entertainment, and it could have even been a sixty minute Black Mirror episode and still worked just as well in terms of solving the story or or, or wrapping up the specific story of these two, but not having to go anywhere else or cover any other commentary or discussions or or other you know aspects or answers to the various questions of why and mike that's why i thought you would have liked it more because i thought you were like uh big on the ambiguity <laughs> kind of sci-fi stuff but i guess not but black mirror is maybe it's the episodic structure that allows you to be more forgiving of a lack of closure a lack of comprehensive sort of um um you know, comeuppance of things that are unexplained. But, yeah, I think that's it. I mean, when you make a film, I do think that there's a very distinct difference in the story that you're trying to tell an audience. Because in a film, whether this, whether an episode is an hour and a half and a film is an hour and a half is not as important as it is about the overall point, right? So when you make a show, you're telling part of a story that as a whole it makes sense of why it exists it makes sense that you watched an episode about a, a woman who comes to the realization that this digital world where it's driven by likes and points um devours her and her consciousness and 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 she loses herself in it despite not getting all the answers about how it affects other people despite not getting a ton of closure on her you only see one beat in her story but for this movie it felt like as is in my opinion should be the case with any movie it is a filmmaker's vision through and through from start to finish even if they are leaving you with a sense of a sequel which of course this is not um it, there's a lot of stuff going on in this movie where there's is very deliberate intent like okay so she's gonna go down into this sort of um alice in wonderland experience where she's gonna see that there are a handful of other people going through the exact same experience as her and the where they are is not important right this is there's more mystical nature to this but the 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 obvious intent of having each one be a different color, right? Which is like you can paint, 
your life whatever color you want, but it's still the same shit. Um, I sort of was reading it into it that way. Like you, you, but, but why, <laughs> why, why did she go through that under the ground experience of seeing the other people? What is her realization and where does she come out on the other side? Um, there is I mean, no, there is did. no answer to that. Right. It's, I mean, that... it's, a, it's a mystery. Sure, but you know, why are these our people? Why are these the characters we're going to go through this experience on? What makes them special? You're going to make a movie. Yeah, yeah. You're going to make. You're going to highlight these two characters specifically in a world in which everyone's doing the same thing. Whether or not they've all been abducted by aliens and they're living in some sort of inception uh, dream state where they are just literally um, experiencing what these aliens think is. A simulation of real life and that's why the clouds look like cartoons and the houses are bad cgi that all felt like almost like it it made sense it was obvious enough without being told directly to me that i can deduce that this was an, an alien simulation or something like i actually i'm gonna walk away just saying that's the, that's what it is <laughs> but okay um you know i'm not saying that they needed to have a post-credit scene of like both of them waking up on in their beds, and then we say, "Ooh, are they abducted?" And then they just put back in their place, and they think they died, and that's just a dream to them, or something like that. Like we don't need that. That's 1998 Vivarium. Um, <laughs> in, in 2020, we accept much more vagueness and less um, observation from the filmmaker. They can leave us with less, and we can take it and run with it. But I, I thought about the movie a bit, and it's only been 24 hours. And I'd love to read an interview with the director or find out more. But I don't know why these two people were the characters we watched. Hmm. It sounds like a, a screenwriter criticizing other screen screenplays. Like sure. these characters suck. <laughs> No, I mean I like the characters, right? I liked, I liked that. There's a moment in the movie that I really respect and really like, which is when Jesse Eisenberg is digging and, well, so she she just said, "Do you want some coffee?" And Jesse Eisenberg says yes. And and to me, right away, I read that as she's sitting here, she doesn't know what to do, she has no idea what's going on, but she knows that if she goes inside and she pours a cup of coffee, it's a cup of coffee. She knows she can do that. That's a task she can perform that was just like the tasks that she performed back in the real world. And, and that gives her a sense of comfort. Mm. And then the same thing is uh, happening when he decides to dig, right? There's the mystery that he's trying to solve, but digging is something he understands. It's something I can do. That's the quote, right? And, and I think that that was a really important moment, and I was hoping to see more of that, of this sort of self-realization that we are all preordained on a path that uh, capitalism or society in general or whatever has put us on. But we all carry into those experiences one specific skill. And I think this can even transition us perfectly into the platform, right? Yeah. We're all going into the same shit, the same dredge but we all carry with us one skill or one item one thing that defines us and makes us different from the other people no matter how similar we're destined to be 
And for him in this situation, I suppose it was digging. Uh, for her, it was potentially her paternal, her maternal instinct. Um, although in that moment, it was maybe it was coffee. But I, I, I think that's an important thought that they were starting and then they didn't follow through on much because his digging didn't lead to anything. It, it, he's literally digging his own grave, right? So yeah. I get that metaphor. Yeah, that that but, is what it leads to. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. But, but, but then it doesn't give them true purpose. I mean, I get that that's the point, but it's, it, it, it's, it's just weird to me, and it didn't ring as, as excitable for me. It didn't make the film better than the sort of level I was at throughout it when I come to the realization at the end credits that they weren't special in this story of repetition at all. I mean, yeah, it's, it's funny because you are, you are kind of making the film's point and, and sort of saying there should be, there should be something more. Isn't it, isn't it about fetishizing something which makes you feel like you're in control to distract you from the fact that you're not, you know, so you can, you know, rearrange the deck chairs or, as, as you say, dig your own grave. And there was a lovely, I love the human is the humanity of when he's saying, you know, she says to him, Oh, you digging in the hole again to this morning. Oh yeah. Thought I'd get and It's it's just like for a second, it's a normal conversation that couldn't, that could be at home. It doesn't have to be in on this strange planet. And that's why he's digging the hole because it gives him this, uh, that sensation. And as you say, with the making of the coffee, but I, I, I would go back to the thing that the, the ending, for me, the ending made it too much like a Black Mirror episode. It made it too neat and too, ah, dee 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 yeah. dee, here we are. Yeah. The, the Twilight Zone, where will we go next week? Whereas I thought, imagine the film, it's 97 minutes long. Imagine it's 90 minutes long. And instead of having that coda where the, the kid leaves, you just have them him burying them in the hole and then leaving, and then you don't know where he's gone or what for. Or maybe he even joins a convoy leaving the the place called yonder and and that to me would be much more ah okay this is the okay there's that i don't know what's going on but i i don't know what's going on much more than oh he just replaces that guy and it starts all over again which the the you know the snake swallows its tail that yeah. for me was much it had a kind of closure but it was a um it wasn't a it wasn't particularly satisfying. I would have preferred a little bit more ambiguity, to tell you the truth. In that, uh, just, that's my one major criticism. The rest of it, yeah, I really, yeah. I really rated and went with. I, I actually think that would have pissed people off. Like, I know maybe not you, and maybe not me, and maybe not Mike, but I feel like there would be a group of people who are like, "Come on, that was so, so unanswered." Question <laughs> to like just end it with them dying, and you're like, "Wait, what?" But I I understand that, and I and I do find that ending I find the ending odd also because it just completes the cyclical nature of it, which I didn't. I wanted one more hint of something, you know. I wanted one more like uh, he walks out, and instead of going to the office, he walks to like like you said uh, some or, or even I was thinking like a into the spaceship corridor or something like that, or into some other weird looking office where you see some other group of people waiting to be you know, go out as salespeople or whatever. I don't know. I just, yeah, I don't, I, I agree with you. I, I don't, it's not my favorite ending. And I, I, it's also a tough one to end because I thought if they're going to kill them both, how else do you end this? Where do you go when they're both dead? You know, mm -hmm. what, what more can you say and do when the story is completely wrapped up and then they're dead and they've, this child is 
they, I mean, I guess they successfully raised it, even though not really. But now there's this child is going out. It's just like, oh, okay. It's a hard one to wrap up, and I and I I'm sure they had problems writing it too. Like, what do we do, and how do we, how do we end it in that way? And I mean, I I, I think there's also, in this current climate of film, there's also this idea of how do you end it in a way that doesn't completely def- like end things in in a sense that they have to be able to leave it open for franchise or leave it open for some sort of sequel continuation. Um, in a way where it's not so definitive that you can't somehow continue it onward and say there's some way to to pull it. Obviously not with these characters, but I don't know. I don't know. Um, well then, as Mike said, this this is a good transition into the platform then because I I will say straight up, having rewatched both of them pretty recently, I like the platform uh, a bit more, and I think the platform has much more deeper and meaningful commentary. Um, and it's more visceral, even though it doesn't have the, this beautiful story of homes that we get to see in Vivarium, but it, uh, it really, it, it like flips your stomach in a way that I think is hard to forget, not only because of its disgusting nature of what's happening in it, but also because of the disgusting nature of what the concept is and, and how, how, uh, wonderfully portrayed that is. So, um. To get into this, who, who wants to start? John, I know you, you, actually, one of the reasons I really wanted to get you on to talk about this is you called it brilliant in, in one of your reviews. And I was like, good. <laughs> I'm glad someone else is feeling this way about the platform because it's uh, it's it's one that can easily be dismissed. And I know I could never convince like my parents to watch it, but I'm glad it's getting that kind of um, praise around it. Oh, no, absolutely. The, the first, as soon as you... Um uh as, even as soon as you you hear the concept there's a there's a moment where you go ah oh am i can i watch this is it gonna be you know you don't think oh wonderful i'll have a lovely dinner and then i'll go and see this movie or you know um it it's just got all those elements that uh that i don't know it, it doesn't make for a very sort of mouth-watering idea but it's just so um well, let me, I, I just explain for a second the, the the context in which I saw it because that's slightly slightly strange as well. I was at the International Film Festival at Macau in China in December. Oh, wow. Okay. And um, the film was showing, uh, I don't think it was in competition. I think it was out. It was, yeah, but it's, it, this is a very young film festival, so it's not very, it's not very established um, anyway. But um, the film was showing late at night, about 10 o'clock, and um, no one else was going to see it. So I went to see it at a sort of public screening with a ticket in a very small uh, cinema, you know, packed with um, a mainly Chinese audience. And just really, really got into it. But I was also watching it in the context of my friends were all going out for dinner. My fellow journalists and colleagues were all going out for dinner and they were going to a casino and they were going to go have a wild time. But I had to see this movie because I was interviewing the director. So I sort of went with a, a real sort of like, ugh, damn it, you know, <laughs> not not something I'm looking forward to. By the end of the movie, I was totally pleased that I'd, I'd seen the film. Mm. I, it, it, it had kind of done what it said it was going to do and more. It, had, it hadn't dropped the ball as far as I could tell. And, um, you know, the only thing that was irritating was when I got back to the hotel, I got a lot of pictures on my phone of, of my colleagues at the casino winning loads of money. So, <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, yeah, it wasn't, 
I, I wasn't lucky in that sense. But um, I, I just thought it did what it what it said it was going to do. It's a high concept sort of sci-fi horror hybrid. Uh, it had a lot of art cinema touches. Um, I think it was hugely influenced by um, Spanish culture as well, so that you mm. have a lot of, you know, it's, it's great to see a movie coming out of a different place and actually mm. retaining some of the aspects of that place, not not just copying uh, a Hollywood product or, or um, you know, really retaining its own its own identity. Mm. Um, so it it. it blew me away in that in that sense and i i really uh i really rated it yeah. and i think i think it does have a you know going back to what mike was saying about vivarium it does have a um uh it does have a coherent articulate message there's a very clear message in the movie um which which is i mean which is so pertinent to today which is essentially look we've got enough toilet paper for everybody if we all take just what we need. Yeah. But if we if, don't if take we what are, we need yeah. and everybody hoards it, then some people are going to be, you know, taking more showers a day than they, than they would otherwise. And I, I, the, one of the saddest things, I mean, sad only because it's real in the film is the way they explore all the different alternatives of attempting to convince people to share. Like the woman who's like, Oh, I'll just, you know, demand and be nice to them. And maybe they'll listen. I'll tell them every day. It's like, no, that doesn't work. You know, fighting them off doesn't really work, you know, convincing people. To, it's like every every attempt at trying to change people's minds to get them to share just doesn't work, which is unfortunate because it's like that's so real in that there really is no other way. And there, and there are a couple of like s- strong lines where that's st- uh, spoken straight up, like the I can't shit upwards line is basically just another way of saying um, the only way people get in line and follow is when you quote unquote, but in the film literally shit on them. And you have to then, to prevent yourself from being shit on, mm. have to follow their orders above. But you can't shit upwards, so you can't control them too. And it's like, it's such a it's such a simple line, but works so well hitting that context of what's happening. Um, and to give context for people who don't know, the the director is um, from yeah, Bilbao, Spain, and uh, this is his first feature, um, and he's picked up tons of awards now. And it to me. I put this on the level, and I've said this because it's been this way ever since it premiered at Toronto, but it's the kind of debut that uh, establishes in a major director in the way that Cube and Saw established um, James Wan and uh, 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 Vincenzo Natale for Cube in in a way where, like, these guys have accomplished something major. This film is going to be known like Cube and Saw in a way that is just recognized as this beautiful uh, contained horror in its essence, achieves its goal of what it's accomplishing, yet also stands on its own as something that's really cool and unique in the in the world of cinema. Um, and I and I have I'm glad I convinced you to watch it, Mike, because I I was really concerned that it's a hard thing to get people to watch, especially when I give you the context of like don't eat food when you're watching this, because even though you think you can stomach it, there's those scenes where you're just like this is just disgusting, and it's so hard to watch and think about eating when you're watching this movie or even after watching this movie. And John, that's right. I, I thought you were going to say that you, 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 all of your friends in Macau were eating dinner and then went to this movie. And I'm like, oh man, that would be a horrible experience. <laughs> no, I was, I was lucky. I did, I didn't go to dinner that beforehand. I was, uh, I, I made that. That was the one right decision, I think. Yeah. I absolutely love this movie. I mean, right now, hard to say. It's been a weird year, obviously, but it feels like the kind of movie that's going to be like one of my top ten to twenty. Um, wow, I didn't, I didn't get that sense from you when you were watching. Yeah. No, I really loved it. And 
I'm curious to see if it lands a best international feature uh, nomination. I, I don't think it will just because it seems to be so forgotten already. Mm. I mean, this is the Netflix problem at its core. Unless people care already about a movie, then they'll just throw it to the to the dust. But um, I will certainly sing its praises for a while. The problem is it's it's a difficult movie to explain to somebody, um, you know, who isn't already interested. Because, like, yeah, you know, at its core, it is um, a movie about... It's like a sci-fi movie about a <laughs> vertical community in which some people choose to go in and some people are, are are given a sort of ultimatum to go in and they live in pairs and every month they change levels and depending on what level you're at you get more or less food based on this one table that lowers through the center and you only get like two minutes to eat from it i, I mean that's the best way i can explain it but that's not doesn't sound like a movie that I, anybody would jump to <laughs> like on on mm. paper it you have to really get into the fact that this is a deeply metaphorical movie on multiple levels that the core action of the movie what you're actually witnessing is exciting and interesting and has high stakes and that the performances are really strong and to be honest like it's not that scary of a movie in terms of the language barrier because it's a very visual movie in terms of understanding what's happening too like you know there there are movies like that are visually appealing that are in another language that you really need to catch the dialogue to to feel what's going on and there is ex, there's exposition in this movie but it's it, it's a movie where you kind of get it pretty quickly at the most basic level and you're invested if you if you're there if you understand the very simple stakes, you can get through the whole movie. But then there's these great little details and things to really ponder and think about when you learn about what each person brought. And like to me, that's a, that's why I love this movie. Is you could have a whole podcast just talking about what each person brought to the platform, mm. um, whether they're the main character bringing the book. Uh, or they are a side character like later you see the guy who brought a samurai sword like it <laughs> seems like a guy who brought a samurai sword understands what he's getting into a guy who brings a book doesn't and you know you think in hindsight you think what you would bring knowing what you know you'd probably bring a weapon right but in the sense of 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 somebody just that basic question like if you were going to an island you can only bring one possession what would it be uh you know, nobody's telling you that the island is the Hunger Game, Hunger Games Island. They're telling you it's an island you're just going to sit and hang out for a few months. Basically, it's the way people yeah. think, right? When they think about being deserted on an island, they think, oh, I'll be picked up in a couple months, so I should bring a good book. Or I should bring my, my uh, Nintendo Switch. Like, no, you should probably bring a weapon to survive. Yeah. My dogs yeah, agree. Absolutely. I, I love that you, as you go down the levels as well, you see loads of different things that people brought. And one of the things is like there's, uh, someone's brought a paddling pool. 
<laughs> oh, two, right, 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 yeah. There are two guys in the paddling pool, and those are actually the writers of the film. So that's oh, uh, wow. so they get their cameo in a paddling pool in the <laughs> you know, level, whatever it was. Yeah. Mike, I also wanted to add to your comment on, on the language is that um, the, the way they speak the, the Spanish in this is also fun. Like the obvio line is such a... Uh, someone wrote on Twitter that uh, if you're watching in the U.S., I guess if your Netflix isn't set up, that when you click on Netflix, it'll play the dub version, the English dub version. And they were like, make sure you switch it back to the subtitled version, which I agree with because you can't... Like obvio is literally a part of the plot. I mean, to a point to... It gets referenced throughout, but like the playfulness of that language makes it more than something that you're just like, oh, I'm trying. I don't know Spanish, but I'm trying to listen to it. You're like, this is all, and you know, this is why I love listening to original voice. I would never listen to a dub is because that is those that inflection and the way it's delivered and the way the other guy picks it up and delivers it back to him is all such an important part of it. And I don't want anyone to miss that because that language is a part of it too, in a way. <laughs> Um, and I also want to mention something, uh, too, is that this is something I have to say because I know someone commented once about it, is that the film is very similar to uh, a short film called Next Floor, which was Denny Villeneuve's, one of his early, early short films after he made Polytechnic. Um, and it's very similar contextually in that there's like a, a banquet of people, rich people eating lots of food. Uh, and someone actually tried to claim that, oh, the platform's a ripoff of, of Next Floor. And it's not. They're, they're different enough to say that they're not. But it is something that it's like, I have to mention it because this Next Floor is great. I also love it. It's a, it's a brilliant short. But it is also a different short that, in that the platform is something else entirely of its own. Mm. I've not seen that. I'll have to look that up. Yeah, it's great. He, it's 2008, so it was way before anyone knew Villeneuve. And they put it on like on YouTube or something a couple of years ago. And that's where I saw it when it ended up online. And it's, it's really worth a watch. It's like 11 minutes, similar kind of grotesque people eating concept. Um, it's really cool. Um, but with the, the other thing about the platform that I, that I think is incredibly fascinating is how accurate the rules are. And I want, I would love to read an interview with the writers about how much time they put into crafting these rules because there is like the rules of the world, I mean, as it, from a sci-fi standpoint, because all, all the rules are not only rules that work for the context of the platform as it works as a, a jail or whatever you want to call it, but also they are references for real world like commentary and what's happening. You know, the rule, even the rule of changing every 30 days is something to me that's like, yeah, we all pay our rent or our mortgage every 30 days. You know, and we have to do that too. And you don't know if you're going to wake up this this 30 days and be in a horrible situation and have to eat each other or not. And um, and like the rule of, uh, you know, this is established early, but the idea of like, well, what if I take food and try to save it later? Well, no, you can't do that either. It's going to be either hot or cold and you don't know the result of that. And also, as interesting as it is, it's a crazy thing, but the rule that you can go to, like you can ride the elevator to any floor you want and that doesn't tr trigger the system. But you can also – you can't really do it because you'll end up dead. <laughs> like there's there's some tricky things that they that I'm glad they decided upon and said we're going to establish these rules and stick to them because they add greater context and depth to the commentary and also the plot of what's happening and how it works within that contained environment. And I, I could have sworn the first time I saw it there was a scene at the beginning that was outside. Um, but I guess it's just him being interviewed before he goes in. And then the rest of it I'm glad is just fully – inside you never get a glimpse outside you never get a, a feeling of what it will be like anywhere else and that everything is now in this one 
the El Hoyo chamber of hell, which everyone yeah. has to go through. Well, I do, do you... wish there right. was. Uh, I, I like the like the cutaways to the chefs, right to the to the kitchen. But it was. Uh, I guess I never really added them up or thought too much. Although I guess in the end they were just a little pre, a little preview of how the panna cotta was a key component. But mm. it, but it wasn't right. Was the point? Actually, explain something to me. What you guys think? Because I'm, I'm forgetting. Um, the panna cotta was, in essence, for the kid. Or did they just give up and give it to the kid, and it turned out it wasn't the panna cotta in the first place? It was the fact no, was, that they got to put the kid on the thing. It was the plan. It was supposed to be the message, and then I think. I'm, I'm, this is my guess here is that I think it, they kind of just gave it and said it's better to keep the kid alive and she needs or he needs to I think it's a she right uh, needs to eat the panna cotta literally to survive and then from there the kid becomes the message instead yeah. of sending food back up then now it's the kid who's the message yeah and I think that was such a hilarious joke of sort of like you know this, this is this this is the thing that will piss them off because it's I mean look the book he's reading is Don Quixote um and so it's a, the book is about uh, a mad a, a a man who's driven crazy by reading novels of you know medieval chivalrous Spain, and goes and tilts at windmills thinking that they're monsters, and the guy who's reading the book, or and eats the book ends up looking like Don Quixote with his little goatee and his crazy hair, and they're yeah. using lances in the fight, and the mission of protecting the Panacotta becomes. Uh, a quixotic quest to let we're going to do this quest, which is, you know, the symbolism of it is going to be the most important thing. And then finally has a realization, well, actually it'd be much more, you know, it's a much more moral act to save this child's life than to send a message, which there's no, there's absolutely no automatic way that that's going to bring the system down. It's just a, you know, it's just a, a dream or a, uh, and they said, uh, and so that—that's what I, I saw him transforming into this, you know, quixotic character, and um, uh, on the on this mission that that in the end starts off as a sort of romantic idea, and in the end becomes something much more real and pragmatic. Um, I also think the kitchen is is sort of consciously um, sort of filmed in a way that sort of suggests that it, it's totally separate from the the prison and. Um, when I uh, talked to the director about it, he told me that he wanted it to be almost like a dream of hungry people, uh, you know, that the hungry people in the prison would be dreaming of where mm. this food came from. And it's interesting that we've been talking about this in terms of Vivarium as well, because uh, in terms of the ending, he uh, he also mentioned the fact that he wanted the idea to be that if you did film the girl escaping from the prison and going outside then what was outside could be, you know, a 500 years in the future. It could be another planet. It could be anything. It didn't, you know, there was no, um, you know, that was the reason that you don't see outside is because you want it to be totally removed. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah. Um, I think that, that was, that's the panicotta uh, explained. Did that help you, Mike? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's not like that would even make or break the movie if there wasn't an explanation that I, I think the movie is is extremely strong 
because of its ability to just sort of stand on its most basic uh, elements. And and that's one of the reasons I love the movie. It's not, I guess, is why I liked it a lot more than Vivarian. If we're comparing the two, well, there 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 are worthy social commentaries, but uh, I mean, similar contain social commentaries. But um, the platform kind of to me represents another of this trend of films we're seeing nowadays, which are kind of anti-capitalism, anti-tiered society, class divide features parasite being the, the the great example of the moment winning best picture and, and another huge social commentary film um and this one being another one in the same kind of way where it very very bluntly and very specifically critiques the, the systems of the world that we live in and that's why i think it, it sticks with me so much is that you see the literal context of uh, which is, you know, we talked about a little bit, but the idea of sharing and the idea of, well, the people at the top who are kings, if you're on level 10 or above, get this beautiful selection of food and that um, even the people on the highest levels, they go nuts and jump into it and, and, and gorge on it and it causes this disruption that um, despite the thought that, you know, trickle-down economics or whatever it is could work, this is the, this is the like, almost literal proof that it doesn't because this is what happens when you trickle things down by the by level 50 or whatever it was suddenly there isn't any food and you're you have 250 plus more levels of which people have to survive off of what scraps or nothing there is and actually there was a point where i thought are people eating like the plates in the glass and the in the stuff that like how do you how do 250 more levels of people survive uh if there is literally no tiny poor, like no little morsel of food left over, what do they do other than eating each other and, and or killing themselves? What, how does it work? And that's such a, that's like a question you can say in the context of the film and then remove and put it in society and say, how do we manage 8 billion people on a planet? And how do we make sure everyone survives and everyone has what they need? And, and John, as you said earlier, this is also a context in, the virus pandemic of how do we survive with the resources that we currently have available in the situation that we're all in? How do we spread that and and allow it and do our best to make sure all of humanity survives or has the chance to survive at least? That's that's what I think this hits so hard in its its commentary and I and I I hope people pick up on it and think about it. I hope it's something that like continues with you once you're done watching it and continues with you when you go out and order you know, delivery or whatever you're getting for dinner tonight, you know, everything in this film, I hope sticks with you in a way that translates into real life decisions, despite it being a fantasy sci-fi film of, of grotesque dimensions, at least you can bring it to mind and, and not forget about it when you're out there um, living our lives in society, which is structured so similarly to the platform, unfortunately. By the way, that brings up an interesting point which is the um, the woman says there's only 200 levels, right? And then it's very clear there's more than that. And I found that to be interesting, and I was thinking about that too, um, in the context of population. And how, I at first I thought, when he woke up at level 202, I thought she was just lying, you know, because... Going to level 202 right after interacting with her was very clearly, you know, the director's saying, hey, nope, she was wrong. And, oh, right, right. and I thought, oh, okay, so, but she wasn't like a bad guy. She seemed to be just doing her job and she was told there were 200 levels. Is that a comment on how, how we 
are always growing. There's more people now than there were before. And like, by the time we see how deep the whole thing goes, it's 333 levels. And I mean, did she know that? Did they lie to her? Was there yeah, 200 when she started? And it just has now 333. There was more. Sorry to continue. There's also, there's mm-hmm. also room for more levels beneath that bottom level. I, I do think it is lying. I think it, I think it represents all of what you just said, Mike. And I think it represents this idea of like, oh, they tell you there's only this many things. You know, they tell you there's not a lot of homeless people out there. But then you go out and you're like, well, we're not actually counting the homeless people. We're not actually recognizing how bad it really is. And like they want you to only think, oh, there's only 200 levels. But really, there's 333 or like you said, more. Um, and the, I think that's the big shocker reveal when they get down to 333 is you're like, wow, this is uh, way more than you thought it could be. And in real life, it's the same thing. Like if you go to India and you look at the way people live and you look at the way people are living on every corner of dust street left around because there's so many people and you're like, wow, I didn't truly understand just how bad it is and just how many people are out there who have nothing and who are living on nothing. And I think that's part of the shock of getting to that point. In addition to all these other things you're talking about, what it means and 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 also her her yeah like she probably didn't know either. They probably didn't tell her. I thought that was an interesting thing with her as an employee is like oh she's supposed to know everything, but no. Not only did she not know enough to not get in it herself, but that she you know or, or her her goal was that she believed in him, but that also that she didn't really know the true reality of it. And it's the same way like you could I mean even all the whistleblowers in the last ten years have been people who worked in the government saw how bad it was and decided to step out of that system and tell the truth about what we don't know, which is that there's more going on here. And I think that's a little bit of the context there. I don't know. That's my thought. Yeah, I think, I think that, um, I, I think you're right. I think it's, I, I also think it works on a sort of technical storytelling level that they've already got you to believe in the rules so much. Yeah that when they then break that rule, it does come as a kind of a shock. You know, it's like, oh no, I thought we knew where we were. This is a prison. It's kind of structured. It has those structures. So at least at least I know where the perimeter is. And then they say, well, no, there is there isn't really, or, or it's it's much deeper than you than you think. Um and then it also sort of feels like you're going into something almost metaphysical that you're you're going into the the pit the the you're going into hell it's a descent into hell sort of literally metaphorically and all all the rest i i really thought as well that i mean what what you were saying earlier alex about this being oh it's just uh, it's a fa- fantasy science fiction sort of horror thing but i think this film feels like it really really is 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 so um, nakedly political. It just want it want it has no apology whatsoever. It's just absolutely a political parable, and it's not making any bones about that. And it's it's taking a decision. It's taking a position, and um, uh, you know this is a film where there's no subtext. It's just text. <laughs> the, the, <laughs> That you don't have to. Oh, I wonder what the thing means about people being on different levels. You know, it means <laughs> that people are on different levels. You know, yeah. it's not it's not subtle in any way, shape, or form. And yet, at the same time, it's new. It is nuanced and complex. It's just it's just also in your face. You know, um, and I think that's what makes it brilliant. And I think it's what one thing that will make me go back and rewatch the film, even though you know there's lots of films 
like this in a sense that I would never go back and rewatch because I just think, <laughs> okay, I got the thrill, I got the idea, I was disgusted appropriately. I don't need to go back in there. But this, it, it's got some question marks over it that I want to go back and, and explore and, and watch again. Yeah. I want to ask you, maybe maybe you can answer this because I don't really know. You you said earlier that there was this context of Spain being a part of it. What what exactly do you mean by that? Like, what are the Spanish elements that are a part of it? Well, there's um well there's the Don Quixote book, which I think is I think oh, right, you know right. if if you if you're brought up in Spain, that's the that's the national novel. That's the first novel. Uh, it's often regarded as the first novel ever written um, mm-hmm. in the modern sense of of novel. Um, so that would be what, that would be one thing. The other thing is, I think when I was watching it, I was very much thinking of Bunel, uh, Louis Bunel, the, um, mm. Spanish director who, mm. you know, um, started off his career collaborating with Salvador Dali and Dali as well in terms of, um, you know, he's, he's sort of the surrealism and yet at the same time, a surrealism, which is based in a sort of photorealistic, um, uh, you know, I mean, uh, some of the, the the way the 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 food is arranged has that sort of artistry to it that Dali would would put in his paintings as well, where you would have food represented quite realistically, but in strange, you know, autumn cannibalism or something like that. Um, Louis Brunel made a film uh, back in I think it was the early '60s called The Exterminating Angel. I'm not sure if you guys are familiar with it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's amazing. It's brilliant. It's it's one of his best films. It's a masterpiece. And it's about a bunch of people who go to a dinner party. So you've got the eating and the, you know, oh, yeah, yeah, and there's yeah, an upstairs, it, yeah. downstairs element. There's the servants and the, the servants are all going away for some reason, but you're not quite sure why. And they're going away surreptitiously. They're just sort of escaping. And in the end, the, well, not in the end, the end of the first act, if you like, the guests at the dinner party suddenly realize that they can't leave. Um, and there's no reason for them not being able to leave. They just can't get past a certain point in the room. Um, and it's it's just brilliant because it's just a wonderful... Um, and then, of course, you know, society begins to break down. People begin to blame each other. Civility begins to fall by the wayside. But it's this wonderful sort of again sort of a par- a parable of the state of society and that was made in the middle of the fascist regime in spain and so you had this um uh you had this bourgeois uh you know liberal middle class who were completely entrapped by the society that they were they were in really but they were they were doing fine as well so they had no real reason to change anything and i i just i just felt that I felt that with this movie that I could see the sort of Spanish influences. I didn't, well, it's coming from Spain. So it is in itself going to be an influence. Um, Also in terms of genre films, there's some been, been some really good Spanish horror movies in the past that have come out. Like, um, Oh, wreck was one example that from quite a while ago now, but you know, it, um, you know, you, uh, yeah. So that, that was the, that, you could have easily imagined them them saying, "Okay, we want to make this for an international market." So instead of Don Quixote, let's let's make it into the works of Shakespeare or something that'll be more, mm. you know, maybe people will be more familiar with. 
Um, but yeah, it, 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 it had that. And, and the way it became Don Quixote, the way it is kind of a version of Don Quixote as well. That, that yeah. All those layers that are on top of it. That's why I was kind of saying that it's got this ambigu- ambiguous, this weird, not ambiguous, this sort of counterintuitive thing of being incredibly bold and simple and strikingly immediate. And yet at the same time, having these layers of complexity and, and depth that, um, you know, that the reward thinking about, you know. Yeah. the message is straightforward you could write it down you know the message is basically um the importance of of you know making ethical choices in an impossible situation um yeah. you know the, the importance of you know uh, of solidarity in a situation where everybody would benefit if we all work together but also the impossibility of that or yeah. at least yeah. the great difficulty of that um yeah unfortunately so that's this when i rewatched it, i wrote down that there's like three i mean three acts but three kind of uh aspects of the film that um i saw as the 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 theme in each one the first one was uh obvious obvio about trying to be good can be can being good change the world the answer was no <laughs> unfortunately in the end he gave into it the second one which was the lady with the dog was about can I uh, inspire spontaneous goodness and spontaneous sharing? Uh, and that not only is that no, but then there's the idea of of shitting on and shitting up and shitting down is the next way of control. And then the third is is the the as you said, you could literally write this down, but the the message is the message. The, you have to cause a revolution. You have to disrupt the system on a massive scale, essentially by sending one person back. But that message can be the the hope, which is a lot of films like even V for Vendetta is all about. It's not about the person, it's about the message, it's about the idea, and can the idea change things more than anything else? Because because it shows consistently throughout that none of what they tried to do was able to change anyone. There was not a single person in any other level that they were able to change. Even the even the, the, the woman who kept showed up, who kind of became a partner of his, she didn't even really change in the end either. She was still just as crazy too, despite being the odd one out who was riding the elevator. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's like, you know, um, expecting the victims of oppression to behave well is is a fool's errand because you know, they're covered in the shit of the ages. They're, they're yeah. not, um, you know, they're not, you know, behaving ethically is something that they haven't been trained. And also another good good aspect of that is there's no rhyme or reason where about where you go. You know, it's not like if you if you really behave well, you go up a level or if right. you, there's no negotiation there. It's utterly random. And, and that randomness is really, um, you know, is really inhuman because even a bad system, even a corrupt system, well, corruption, there are rules to corruption. So you can, you can, you can be good at corruption and that way you can make your way up or you can refuse to be corrupt and you can be sort of satisfied with the position you're in low down because at least I haven't sold my soul to, to get higher. So I, I value that more than this. And either way you have some sort of system of values that you can rely on instead here. It's utterly, you know, um, it's just random. So you, you're, you're screwed, you know, and then the, uh, on top of that, there's this sort of religious aspect going down to hell, and the, it, it, in, in mm. Spanish it's called the pit, the hole. So it's the same idea. But also, there's an idea of reincarnation that these people are, are literally being reincarnated, but without any moral sort of imperative to it. They're just being reincarnated. So if you're being mm. reincarnated, the lesson surely should be: well, if I could end up at the bottom next month, surely I should 
behave in such a way that the people in the bottom are okay so that when i am in the bottom the people above me will behave similarly to the way i behaved you know mm-hmm. do unto you know the judeo christian sort of do unto your neighbor the golden rule but that's like um yeah as you say it's it's one of many failed attempts to deal with this system yeah i like the conversation they have at one point about why the people in the higher levels are the ones who most often or at least from their perspective kill themselves because I, I, when it, when he first said that, I was like, wait, what? They have all the food they need. And he's like, he, his point was so strong. I was like, oh, damn, man. About, he, I think he said something that, um, they, they realize this is the best they'll ever have it. And after 30 days, they'll never have it that good again. So what's the point of living? And I'm like, that's such a, that's such a deep thought to have because it's basically saying this age old theme that we all know, which is that even if you're rich, that doesn't mean you're happy. That doesn't mean everything's great. Even if you have all the money and power in the world, that doesn't mean everything's perfect. And it's that reminder, too, that, like, yeah, they can have everything they need in the context of this this whole, but that doesn't solve all their problems, and they still feel shitty. <laughs> it's like Jack Nicholson says to John Houston in Chinatown, you know, how rich do you have to be? How many pairs of shoes can you wear? Yeah. How many dinners can you eat? Even the rich people in this in this film, they only have two minutes to eat. So... You know, that idea of, you know, nobody's enjoying the food. They're just gorging themselves as a a way of of surviving. Um, Yeah. So, yeah, nobody benefits from this. It doesn't matter what floor you're on. You're going to be miserable. Yeah. It is a fascinating, like, more money, more problems (laughs) commentary. It's not just like a Bong Joon-ho, you know, lower class deserves uh opportunities that the upper class takes advantage of and doesn't allow which is certainly very true but this is like one of those great equalizer movies right is that um struggle exists at all levels it just looks different you have an abundance of choice too much even to um fully appreciate an experience and the knowledge that you may lose that at any moment uh is where those high levels go as you guys have explained in the lower levels what i thought was a really interesting thing that is not in the movie or not explored is the idea that um you know in the real world most people who live in the quote-unquote lower levels We'll never know what it's like to be at the higher level. They'll never know. Even if they see it on TV, they will never know what it's like. And same with the many of the people at the top levels. They'll never know what it's like to be at a bottom level. And so that's why I think I really liked this movie more than anything. Because it isn't over-realistic. It isn't trying to only express what happens in real life. Um... Rather, it's bringing up a point that can't really happen in real life, which is to say that um, people who live at the top should experience what it's like to live at the bottom, even if it's just for 30 days. And people at the bottom should be able to live that life at the top for 30 days. And I think one of the most valuable lines in the entire movie is right near the beginning when the obvio guy says, we're on a good level. Right in the middle, (laughs) right? And, uh, you know, at first you hear it's 200 levels, you just assume 171 was low, but then by the end you realize that 171 was pretty much dead center, 
and that's comfortable you get you know mm-hmm. and yet it, is it is it though <laughs> all they things, eat each other <laughs> I, all things well i think that brings up a different part of the story though which is that you know ignorance is bliss and knowing what you know about if you had the ability to live at the bottom and live at the top knowing what you know even living in that sort of middle ground you'd still have fear you'd still think about what could go wrong and how awful it can be and um and they're still relying on the people at the top doing their part eating their fill i i just liked i liked how everything was very clear what should happen and then when it didn't happen it wasn't that it was wrong it's just that it's different it's just that by the end it wasn't that they were wrong to pursue uh giving food to the lowest possible level it's just didn't work out uh you got to adjust the plan and and accept the reality of of uh of of where you are and i i i I found that very interesting i i cared for the characters which is where i didn't in vivarian right and i felt like that was a very big part of this experience was feeling a sense of dread and hope for the characters but at the same time and um accepting that once our main guy dies in uh the platform that we're actually kind of happy for him because we've seen the journey he's gone through and he seems fulfilled enough at least by his experience whereas in vivarium i got no sense of fulfillment i got no sense of self-awareness i got no sense of 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 character development from from the beginning to the end in which their mindsets have changed and they're more self-aware that's where i felt like those two movies were very different with with the with the characters yeah i'm because i does 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 the main guy learn anything on the platform (laughs) i mean his his learning is that nothing works i guess that's what he learns but i i think he he came to an understanding when he saw the girl that um, he was still at first felt like we need to protect this thing, but that by watching the other guy who saved his life repeatedly make a decision that was bigger than himself, that he seemed to accept that decision after it was made. He didn't make that decision, but he understood that it was the right thing to do and that now all he's left with is his own demise but he knows mm. that that girl is going to go rise up to safety, which, of course, he doesn't know is the case or not. But his presumption is that he sacrificed himself for her. Yeah. And in theory, that would if it all goes well, that would disrupt the system. And, and the message is what matters. Well, it, I mean, it's yeah, I, I, I think I, I, I agree with Mike on this. I think that he um, maybe more than learned something, it's he learned something about himself uh, that, Mm. you know, how would you behave in this situation? How would you behave on these different levels? And he's, he's, there's a a life and fate by Vasily Grossman. There's a brilliant uh, chapter in that book where it talks about a guy um, in the concentration camps who's working as a capo. And uh, there's this realization he has uh, one day when he's, 
he's trying to justify to himself what he's doing and he keeps saying well you know i'm surviving and this is this is you know if there was any other way of surviving i'd do it but here i'll, I'll get extra food and i'll get and then he suddenly has this sort of revelation where he realizes wait a minute the only moral thing to do when you're living under fascism is is not necessarily to survive and um it, you know it it he's put survival at the pinnacle of his uh of his sort of you know what you have to do but then of course there are situations in which surviving is more immoral surviving is not the 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 most important thing to do if you want to survive as a as a human being you know if you want the what you hold dear what you value to survive as well so here when um when he although he dies at the end there is kind of a sense of that this is not depressing necessarily and i would i also agree that if you compare although i think i like vivarium more than mike does but the vivarium has a much more airless sort of feel to it uh when they when they you know the head of the isabel poots character bumps down the stairs and Imogen Poots, sorry, and goes into the the pit. There's a real sense of the almost the film discarding the characters as well, and it feels mm. very, um, it it feels like the the film is almost participating in that kind of okay, we could, they're disposable, we can throw them away. They didn't really matter, um, and that's kind of depressing, but it doesn't doesn't really tell you anything. Whereas this is is he, as, although it's ostensibly very depressing, there is a glimmer of hope. Um, and I mean, I don't know. I don't want to, uh, you know, uh, keep uh, name dropping the director or, or, or anything. But I thought it was interesting that when I talked to him, he said um, that they filmed three different endings. Ooh. <laughs> and uh, and so I was like, oh, tell me, tell me, tell me. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. No, yeah. no, I'm not uh. going to tell you. He said one of them. He said one of them was basically a variation on what on what you see. So it it wasn't that big a difference, but there was a variation. And another one was totally different. And it was interesting because he didn't say, you know, and we decided because of this or because he said the message was terrible. <laughs> said, I, I'm, he said, I'm no, no one's ever going to see it because the message was terrible. Maybe so, it's just like everyone is dead and there's no hope at all. No message. I can see, I can see them doing that. Like get to three, three, three. And you're like, well, that's it. There's no, you, here. you know what I think it is. I think that the little girl goes up to the top and then she goes to the, where the interview was and she becomes the woman and it all starts all over. Oh, again. Wow, that would be messed up. Yeah. Or, or she just gets up there and just like eats food and doesn't do anything. And they're like, what? <laughs> my, my other question to sort of throw out to you guys, almost as a wrap up on, on this is, uh, do you think there's, and this is not, this is only for the sake of discussion, not like I'm a film industry bigwig trying to make a decision here, but do you think there could actually be a sequel to the platform? And if so, what would they do? What, what could it be? Would they, could they expand upon it to, you know, more than two people per level or some sort of multi-tiered intertwining up and down platform system? Is that possible? Or is it just like, this is it, this is done and, and. This one movie is it. Not, not only I only think of this too because Cube and Saw being the similar examples, they both have franchises made out of them too. Despite everyone thinking this is all they can do, I, I would suspect there there might be a sequel to this, but it would be with a d different creative team. I don't think the director would come back to this. I think it. I think it works as it works. I think anything. I, I think any expansion on this would be a diminution. I don't think yeah. it would. I don't think you would add anything to it. And what you're talking about, multiplying this or doing something visually with it, 
it, it's the simplicity of it that works that ends up being, you know, paradoxically complicated and interesting. Whereas you add more stuff and it just becomes another, uh, okay, you know, it's, yeah. you know, I, no, I, personally no but then again i didn't want to i didn't want david lynch to re you know to do a sequel to twin peaks and look how wrong i was there <laughs> i think you're I mean, more likely to see a, a remake an english-speaking remake i can totally yeah. see 100 percent somebody looking at this and seeing the value of casting a well-known actor in the main in the main role i mean hell uh maybe it was just subliminal because of the Don Quixote stuff, but I thought he looked a hell of a lot like Adam Driver. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And a Blumhouse kind of not not huge budget, keep the simplicity, and yeah, almost make a shot for shot remake. Yeah, yeah. I mean, hell, that movie can be done for less than five million dollars with a super yeah. big actor in the helm. But yeah. As is the Can case it, with Downhill, we know that American remakes tend not to focus on the right things. True <laughs> enough. But I just wanted what I, here's a question that I did ask the director that I, um, I thought you might you guys might be interested in. Um, what would you take in, onto the platform with you? Ooh, what what, what was his answer first? <laughs> no, no, no. I'll tell you uh, afterwards. Okay. Well, it's hard to say because, as Mike mentioned earlier, there's the question of, do I know where I'm going or not? Because if you know where you're going, like, a knife would make sense uh, mm -hmm. for multiple reasons. But if not, I, if, if I was, like, blindly going into something where I knew I'd be in there for six months but I had no idea what was happening and just needed to bring something with me. I mean, a book was a good idea in that context. But other than that, I don't know. Mike? Yeah, I was thinking about this. Because a book is like, okay, it gives me time, gives me a way to pass the time. Yeah. And other than that, I'm like, what other tools do I need? Well, a knife is the most resourceful tool for the pit. But other than that, I don't, I mean, other than like cheesy stuff like, oh, my cell phone, because that would also help me pass the time. <laughs> but it clearly wouldn't work down there and there'd be no electricity. Well, maybe right. there's, there's, there's reception at level two. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. So for one month out of the many I'm stuck, I can only have a reception and go crazy for that one month of being able to connect to the world. <laughs> it's such it's such a difficult thing to answer in hindsight because yeah, we understand now. But I mean, the other question is: Is it have to be something that you already own? It seemed like it did. Um, mm. Because I. I have always thought about the, you know, the uh, island question, and I've always thought, you know, yeah, I would probably bring a survival tool like uh, like a Swiss Army knife, but I have a, you know, maybe you get a larger one, not a little pocket-sized one, <laughs> and, and that could still be used as a weapon, but it wouldn't serve you as well as uh, <laughs> um, a samurai sword, but uh, it would serve you better than a canoe. Or a surfboard, or whatever that person had. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That was brilliant. In hindsight, I would probably bring a parachute, because then you could just jump and then parachute down to the bottom. Yeah, and then what do you do down there? Just hang out and eat all the leftover dishes? Uh, I feel like that black void is a big question, right? What is that? Yeah, is that true. It isn't, isn't an answer. We don't could know. Could you continue walking? beyond and end up in an opening or like a jetpack actually a jetpack would probably be more more efficient because you could go up but that's true 
I would, would probably, I would probably end up just bringing some kind of, uh, um, like a, a computer with a <laughs> bunch of movies on it or something, and yeah. then it has all my like like Microsoft Word on it too, so I could get into a writing mode or I could, you know. But of course, I wouldn't be able to charge it. So there you go. So John, what is your answer, and what is the director's answer? Uh, my answer would be juggling balls because I've always wanted to learn to juggle. Ah, nice. But I can see that the first day I would fail and they would all fall down the stall <laughs> and we'd have nothing left. True. Um, and the director's answer was he said he was always, he said that basically there was the binary of the book and the sword was kind yeah. of what everybody is ultimately deciding. And he would, he would romantically like to think he would take the book, but he would probably take the sword. And the only th- the only compromise he could think of is if the book is heavy enough, he could use that as a weapon as well. Yeah, true. You could you could also paper cut people with the pages, but <laughs> not efficiently. <laughs> exactly. Well, this is I'm I'm glad we talked about it, and I I like Mike said we could almost even have a whole other podcast just about individual parts of it and um, moments of it, and uh and and there's so many little moments of it that I like that add to me, to my thoughts and make me go like, oh, wow, this is, this is cool what they're commenting on. Um, but I just also just, as I said at the beginning, I, I just want people to see it and take a chance on it and watch it. And um, to quote Bong Joon-ho, to, to overcome that one-inch barrier and watch the Spanish version with subtitles and, and enjoy it or not enjoy it, you know? Maybe if it, I would love to hear someone who hated it, what, what they're, other than the re- repetition of it, what they can truly despise about it. Um, but that's it's I just it's it's a great discovery film that like you you're experiencing it, John the first time that like that's what I want people to go have is just like I have no idea what they're going into, see something cool and see something that's different that's not what we see so much of nowadays and just be intrigued by it and um, yeah and end up in conversations like this because this is this is my favorite part about cinemas when we get to talk about what it is we like about films and what, what they encourage inside of us to uh, discuss and think about. So thank you all for coming on and, and having this discussion. Um, to wrap up, pleasure. one one last thing. Is there any other film you recommend people watch right now if they have a, if they have a moment? When they have a moment in the evenings with nothing to do but watch a film? Um uh, yeah, I would I would definitely recommend Exterminating Angel, which you can find in uh, various yeah. sort of platforms. The other one that I got uh, I really got into, um, I uh, yesterday was Toshiro Mifune's hundredth um, birthday. If he'd been alive, he would be a hundred, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, everybody knows Toshiro uh, Mifune from the Akira Kurosawa films, or maybe Shogun. The, tv miniseries but he's a brilliant actor and he's really worth digging out some more of his work and there's a brilliant trilogy called the samurai trilogy directed by hiroshi uh inagaki uh which again you can kind of find on the internet various places um and it's just brilliant a 1950s trilogy of samurai movies which are really shot like a beautiful color uh, early early Technicolor sort of um, photography, just really each one's about an hour and forty five minutes, an hour an hour and a half long, and they follow the story of a uh, Mifune as a swordsman. I and I just yeah, it, I can't recommend them highly enough. 
Yeah, I saw you talking about this, and it made me want to watch them. I'm, I'm going to have to do that. And uh, and the Bunuel film. Um, I would follow up and say there's there's a documentary from recently called Mifune, The Last Samurai, which is just like a, a, a biopic about him and his life that um, is fantastic. If you want to dive deep into his, his career and his life, just, just watch everything. And Mike? I don't know. I... <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying. I mean, I'm I'm trying to get a lot of stuff done, but right now I'm also trying to catch up on some of the more mainstream things, like Westworld. I caught up with just this week and spent a little bit of time doing that. So I don't have a ton to offer in terms of brand new movies, but you know, I did watch. Um, what was it called? <laughs> uh, Clearly, so strongly. Okay. No, I just forgot the actual <laughs> name of it, but the. I watched The Hunt the other day, and I'm glad we're not doing a podcast on it because, I mean, I don't, I don't know that it really requires a whole podcast. But that movie is not nearly smart enough to have gotten the controversy that it did. Yeah, I totally agree. Totally um, agree. Yeah, I feel like I that's don't think the it even qualifies as satire. It's just, it just, it's just dumb. It, it's exactly yeah yeah. I mean I, I I hate to I hate to be so so mean to a movie. I know all movies do require quite a lot of effort and and uh, I'm sure that they worked really hard on this movie. But man, I just wish they didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen the Invisible Woman? Uh, not the Invisible I, Woman. The Invisible Man. The Invisible Man is my favorite movie of the year so far. Ah, excellent. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. good. I wasn't yeah, that. I wasn't that. Yet. I wasn't that crazy for it as Mike was. I liked the first halfway more than the second, but it's good. Uh, I liked it. I thought it was great. Really enjoyed yeah. that. Yeah. Well, the other movie that came out this year that I, I sincerely loved was Emma. I did not expect to love that movie as much as I did. Right. Right. That's on my list. Then. Yeah. Okay. Well. Um, uh, last question for you guys. Where can we find your work? John, where can people follow you and read you and listen to you more? Oh, yeah. I'm on Twitter, Dr. John T D R J O N T Y. I have a website, johnbleasdale.com. And I'm, yeah, I, I'm, I freelance, so I'm around lots of different places, um, Cineview and uh, amongst them. Cool. And am I? I, I am at. Eisentower30 on Twitter and uh, uh, my documentary To Air is Human still out there if you're bored and you want to watch something about healthcare um, this actually I think is somewhat timely for people to watch although it's not about pandemics it is about your experience in the hospital and how to make yourself safe um, and if, if you're going to get caught in the hospital right now that is a big topic so um, you can check that out on iTunes and Amazon and such, but otherwise just say hey on Twitter. Yeah, cool. And as always, you can find me at First Showing and on FirstShowing.net, trying to keep things cinema focused during this tough time. So thank you everyone for listening and uh, stay safe, stay healthy, and we'll hope to catch you again soon. <laughs> you always leave on such a high energy note. I always, honest to God, Mike, I don't even think people get to this point of the podcast. <laughs> well, that's if my, you that's do, my tweet at first showing, hashtag I made it.
and let us know. Okay. <laughs> we'll give them a prize of a high five, a virtual high five. Yes. <laughs> well, thank you all. No, thank you. Uh, it's a pleasure. Thanks very much for having me, mate.